One of the beautiful things about the church universal across the world and our local church is that we have people from every age group, uh, from every walk of life. Knowing that we have people from every age group, I realize that this introduction is going to be foreign to some of you, namely you guys right here. To others of you, you're going to be so familiar with this that you can disabuse me of any of my thoughts about this later. But if there is one thing that keeps me motivated, whenever I have to wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning to go to work, there's one thing that I'm like, you know what? I can keep doing this. It is retirement. (laughs) I know I'm decades away, but still, the thought of retirement keeps me going. The, the, The thought that one day I don't have to get up to go to work anymore is like the greatest thought I can possibly think. It's my highest joy. It's like I don't have to go to work And in fact, I'm so committed to this idea of retirement, maybe even getting there earlier, that to tweak the Hamburglar's phrase a little bit, I'll gladly forego a hamburger today to save for retirement tomorrow. I'm all about saving. I want to save. I want to get to retirement, and I want to get there fast. Right? Because in my mind, and again, you can correct me later if I'm wrong, life is going to be better when I retire. You know, I'll get to spend time with my kids, and hopefully there will be grandkids. Life is going to be better when I retire. In a lot of ways, the, the story of the Bible is like retirement, right? There's, there's, there's a process, there's saving, there's working towards something, and then you get to that day and everything's better. And there's no better way to encapsulate that this is kind of the arc of the Bible than the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books. Maybe it's because I so look forward to retirement that I find it so wonderful. But the book of Hebrews helps us understand that the story of the Bible, everything that's contained in these pages, was a process. Everything was moving forward to something. Like that day when I can call HR and say, I'm retiring Everything was moving and looking forward to one day, to, but more specifically, to one person. And that person is Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us one thing, and it's that Jesus is better. As we begin a somewhat abbreviated sermon series through the book of Hebrews, I want to start with the background And then we're going to use verses 1 through 4 today to really solidify that background and give us what the book of Hebrews is about. And it is this one message. It's that Jesus is better. Hebrews is a unique book in a lot of ways. Perhaps the the way that it is most unique is that of all the New Testament books, this is the book that we are least sure of its author. Right, anytime you have an introduction to a book, what's the first question you ask? Who is its author? Well, the short answer is we don't know. The book of Hebrews doesn't tell us who the author is. And I have a lot of reasons why I think it's the Apostle Paul. And I was going to share them with you today, but for the sake of time, just trust me, come talk to me after if you want to know why I think it's the Apostle Paul. But I, I believe that it's the Apostle Paul. And also unique to this book is that it's a generally held consensus is that the book of Hebrews was a sermon that was preached and then it was written down. 
The book of Hebrews was a sermon, like you're hearing today, only much, much better, and someone transcribed it. They wrote it all down because it was that good, and they knew that it needed to be heard. So the author, for our purposes, is Paul, and it was a sermon that I believe he preached. At the end of the day, the reason why we can kind of skip over that, and we can talk later if you'd like, is that that doesn't really matter, uh, or it doesn't matter a great deal. What does matter more is the audience. To whom was the book of Hebrews written? So we believe that the book of Hebrews was written to Hellenistic Jews. Now, Hellenistic Jews were, were people in the ancient world who kept and followed the Jewish religion, but had accepted major portions of Hellenistic or Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language. They took place in Greek commerce. Uh, there, there was major aspects of their life that were given to the Greek culture that was prevalent at that time. So in many ways, Hellenistic Jews were just perpetual outsiders. Right? They weren't fully in the Jewish community and they weren't fully in the Hellenistic community. To, to the Judaizers, it would have been, look at these weird people who, yeah, they follow our religion, but they speak the other language. They do the other things. To the Greek people, they would have said, look at these people shopping in our markets, speaking our language, but following this weird religion. The Hellenistic Jews were, in many ways, outsiders. But what we know about Hellenistic Jews, a lot of it we get from the book of Hebrews. One of the things that we know about Hellenistic Jews is their greatest literary uh, gift to the world, which would have been something called the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint is just a big word that uh, means the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So imagine you living in the ancient world, the language that everyone spoke was Greek. How are you going to read the, New Te the Old Testament? Well, the Hellenistic Jews took the he Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Greek. Now, across the book of Hebrews, we have many, many references, extended references, dozens and dozens of references to the Old Testament. And nearly all of those references come from this Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because it was almost certainly written and preached to a group of people who would have had the Septuagint. And they would have had this Greek Old Testament. But more than this, we see that the audience had a deep understanding of the Old Testament. Not only do we have passages and, and extensive passages quoted, but we have large sections of Hebrews that talk about Moses, right? Where do you learn about Moses? In the Old Testament. We have a large section that talks about the wilderness generation. Where do you learn about the wilderness generation? In the book of Exodus and Numbers. In the Old Testament, we learn a lot about the Levitical priesthood. Where do we learn about the Levitical priesthood? book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, we learn about the temple. There are vast, there are huge portions of Hebrews that are talking about Old Testament concepts that only a Jewish person would know and understand. But in addition to this, we, we, we see that the audience, these Hellenistic Jews, are not just people who 
have an Old Testament, who know their Old Testament well, but they are a people who are struggling and suffering. So if you turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, the, the author of Hebrews says this, but remember or recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We see here that this is a group of people who had property confiscated. This was a group of people who were put in prison. This was a group of people who stood with people who were put in prison. Why? Because they had an abiding and better possession after having been enlightened. Now we're going to see what that enlightenment is in just a moment. But these Hellenistic Jews were people who were on the outside. And they were on the outside for one major reason. It's because they had accepted Christ as being better, right? The, the persecution that I think is being referenced here is the, the, the persecution that Saul would have taken a part in. It was the persecution that happened early in the history of the church whenever the, 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 the Judaizers were persecuting, they were imprisoning, they were confiscating property from these people. The reason why I think that that's the case is that these Hellenistic Jews, they weren't tempted to turn to Caesar for help. They weren't tempted to, to go to the Roman emperor or to the Greek culture for help. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. They were tempted to go back to the temple. They were tempted to go back to the priesthood. So these people were tempted to turn their eyes off of Christ and look to something else. And that leads us to the purpose of the book. Leads us to the purpose of the book. Now, we have one statement late in the book, in chapter 13. If you look in chapter 13, verse 22, it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He, he, he's, saying, he's saying, stay on track. Stay on track with my word of exhortation. The book then was given as an encouragement this was given to take people who are suffering, people who are struggling, people whose property is being taken, and say, hold on, S stand firm, listen to this encouragement. This is a book that's meant to, to exhort, to build up, to encourage, to hold fast to the faith. But we see how it does this through a logical structure of arguments in the book. One of the most important words or word combinations in the book of Hebrews is this combination of therefore or then and since. Therefore and since. By my likes, this combination of words happens 11 times in the book of Hebrews. It happens in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. You see the pattern? Uh, 4, 14. 4.16, and 13.13. If you want those later, come see me after the service and I'll give them to you again. 
But we see interspersed throughout the book, regularly, Paul says, therefore, or he says, since, therefore. Since something, therefore, live this way. Since this is true, then live your life in this way. This is what the book is for. It's to tell us how we are to live our lives. It's to tell us how we ought to live in the midst of this struggling and in the midst of this, uh, this suffering and these temptations. So the question then is, what is the sense, right? What is the truth that shapes how we are to live? The answer is simple. It's that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Six times in this book, Paul says Jesus is superior or Jesus is greater or Jesus is better. He says it in 1.4. He says it in two, chapter 2, verse 9. He says it in chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 6. And chapter 12, verse 2. He drives on this point over and over again to let us know that Jesus is better. And since Jesus is better, then you ought to live in this way. Since Jesus is better, then you ought to hold fast to your faith. That's the background of the book. Paul spoke this sermon. This book was written. It was given to a group of Jewish Christians who were tempted to leave the faith because of their struggling. And what Paul wanted to communicate to them was that don't leave the faith. Jesus is better. As a way of plunging us straight into the book of Hebrews then, let's look at verses 1 through 4, which are almost like the introduction to this sermon. They are the introduction to the book, and what it does is it encapsulates everything that we will encounter in this book. All the teaching in this book is summarized in these first four verses. So let's read them and then see if we can understand them and how they might apply to our lives. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much to superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Our passage this morning begins with this epic statement. It's almost like the beginning of Star Wars. You guys remember seeing Star Wars? It just begins long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Paul says, long ago, at many times and in many ways. I love this passage because what Paul is doing is he's giving us here a theology of revelation. He's giving us a theology of what is happening in God's word. And it's simply this, that God was speaking to us through his word in his Seminal book, Biblical Theology, Gerhardus Voss says that theology or seeking to understand our scriptures is essentially an exercise 
in God speaking and man listening. So when you go home today or this week and you read Hebrews through or whenever you sit down for your quiet time and you want to understand what God's word says, that is a process of God speaking and you listening. Whenever you sit down with another Christian this week and you read the Bible together, that is an exercise in God speaking and you listening. If you come to our Wednesday night study or our Thursday night Zoom study, that is an exercise in God speaking and us listening. So what that means is not that you open up the Bible and you try and decode secret meanings from God. It doesn't mean that you are trying to figure your way up to understand God. What it means is that God has spoken And he has told us about himself. But notice he says that God spoke to us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What are the prophets? It's God's word. Moses was a prophet. David was a prophet. Solomon was a prophet. Micah was a prophet. So uh, earlier this year, whenever we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, God spoke in the book of Ecclesiastes. A year and a half ago, whenever we did our series through the Minor Prophets, God spoke through the Minor Prophets. God was revealing himself to us through the Minor Prophets. But not only was God speaking, in the very same page of that book, Gerhardus Voss tells us that, that linked together are God speaking to us, God giving us his word, and God's action. So let's think about this. What does this mean? Where's the first time we see God speak and see God act in the Bible? Genesis 1. Right? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So who is doing something there? God. He's acting. He's creating. Now how do we know that God created? He told us He created by giving us the book of Genesis. All right, now skip forward a book. Go to the book of Exodus. Who was it that brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, parted the Red Sea so that they could cross through? It was God. God did that work of salvation for the people of Israel. But how do we know about it? The Bible. God spoke to us. God spoke to us. So God's Speaking and God's acting go hand in hand. They come together. Now, what this tells us is first, is it tells us that the Old Testament is good. There is goodness in the Old Testament because God is speaking to us there. God is telling us things. He is showing himself to us. But it also shows us the incompleteness of the Old Testament. Right? God spoke But it's not until we get to verse 2 that we see that God has spoken. So there's an incompleteness to the Old Testament revelation. But we also understand then that there's a purpose to Old Testament revelation, and it's namely Jesus. How many of you have ever ran a marathon or a 5K, or trained for a marathon or a 5K? Okay, not me. I loathe running. Running is what you do when you see a bear, and praise God, I've yet to meet a bear. But earlier this year, um, Amy and I, we did something crazy. We didn't think we, didn't think I would ever do it, certainly not Amy. We registered and took part in the Intelligentsia Cup, which is uh, a 
a eight-day-long bike race series in, in the Chicago area. And so last fall, in fall, right, 2020, I was like, you know what? I'm going to race in the Intelligentsia Cup. So you know what I did? I, I put it on my calendar, and the date was right there. Now, if you've run a marathon, Jenny, you ran a marathon, you can testify to this. How do you prepare for running a marathon? Running. I, when I was preparing for the Intelligentsia Cup, I, I, I wasn't sitting on the couch knitting and saying, you know what, I'm going to be in great shape by the time this race gets around. No. I rode my bicycle. I woke up in the winter early, went down to the basement, and I rode my bicycle because I was going to race in the Intelligentsia Cup. Whenever you run a marathon, whenever you train for a race, you do the thing that you're going to be doing. But guess what? I rode my bike all winter long. I rode my bike all winter long, and it was great, and it was fun. But on July 23rd, or whatever the date was, I had ridden in the Intelligentsia Cup. It was different. It was different. I, I, I was training. I was trying to get to that one day when I could ride my bike in a race. And in the same way, this is what happens with God's revelation in Scripture. He's speaking to us. He's giving us His Word, and it's all building, and it's all pointing, and it's trying to get to something. And that something we see in verse 2, but in the last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Right. Now the guys in my Thursday night study, we pay attention to verbs, right? right? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What tense is that verb? It's past tense, something that happened. What does he say now? He has spoken to us. Has spoken is a past perfect tense. It indicates a specific event, and now it indicates that it is finished. It has been done. God has finished speaking, and if God's speaking and his acting and moving and redemption are linked, then that means that redemption is also done. The work of God pointed to Christ and now it is finished. Maybe you came here today because you wanted to hear a special word from God. Well, I've got one for you. And his name is Jesus. You don't need anything more. There's nothing I can add. There's nothing anyone can add because what Christ has done, his work on the cross, who he is, is the final word of God. It doesn't get any deeper. It doesn't get any better. And we don't need anything else. God has spoken in his son. Paul then gives us seven ways in rapid succession, so we're going to move through them in rapid succession, that Jesus is better, specifically better than the prophets. So Jesus, what, what he said, who he is, what he has done, the revelation about God through him is better than the Old Testament prophets in these ways. First, we see in verse 2 that he has been appointed the heir of all things. Now, this just shores up that idea that it's the Son. First of all, he says it's the Son. It's the second person of the Trinity. The Son was the one who would inherit from the Father. So there's certainly an aspect here of the Trinitarian nature of God. But more specifically, what Paul is trying to evoke in our minds is Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, 
we have a messianic psalm. It was a psalm where they looked forward to the one who was going to come, who was going to bring God's kingdom, his rule and his reign, and bring all of God's promises. David looked forward to the heir of all things in Psalm 2. Isaiah looked forward to the heir of all things in Psalm 2. Ezekiel looked forward to the heir of all things. All these prophets looked forward to the heir of all things. But guess who Paul doesn't have to look forward to anymore? The heir of all things. Because the heir of all things has come. This is a statement in just a few little words that lets us know that Jesus is better because he's the Messiah. Jesus is better because he is the Christ. He is the one who is going to come and bring all of God's promises given to us in the Old Testament and bring them to our hearts and to our lives. Second thing that we see is here in verse 2. It says, through whom also he created the world. And then it says, later in verse 3, related to it, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moses, who's a prophet, who gave us the first five books of the Old Testament, who revealed to us who God was, who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he was a great guy. But he did not create the world. Jesus is superior to all of these because he was before all things. He created all things. We're we're reminded here of of John chapter 1 that says that without Christ, nothing that has been made was made. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. He's the creator, which means that he is perfectly God. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus was there. The Son was there. And he was active in creation. It also says he sustains all things. Now think about some of the most influential and important people in history. George Washington, right? History test. Answer George Washington and you'll get almost every answer right. George Washington was, by all accounts, a wonderful person. Very important and influential in the founding of the United States of America. But guess what? George Washington died. George Washington died, and the United States continued. The United States grew. The United States continued to advance and make progress in many areas after George Washington died. His home state of Virginia, it's still there. They were in the news this week. George Washington, the world continues on without him. Any number of people, the world continues on without. But without Christ... Nothing that exists will continue to exist. Christ sustains all things by the word of his power. The the fourth way that we see that Christ is better, he says here, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So there's two words that are used here. ESV translated as radiance and exact imprint of his nature. That first word, there's, a, there's an old word that I really like that some translations use. It's effulgence. Effulgence. Right? We don't use that word very often, but we probably should. Effulgence is the, it's the, the light. It's the radiating beams. Whenever you turn on your light, right? you turn on your light and all of a sudden there's brightness. Effulgence is the brightness that comes with the turning on of that light. 
What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the brightness that shines forth from God's glory. We can't see God's glory, right? We don't necessarily see light, but we see its brightness. Jesus is the brightness that shines forth from God's glory. And then he says he is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Maybe some of you at home have like a, an old stamp, not like a, a, a post stamp, but one of the stamps that you would take and you would, uh, like an ink blot stamp. You put it on the stamp and what it would do is it would take that ink and then you'll put it on the paper and it'll put it on the paper. That's more of the kind of stamp that, that, that they have in mind here or, or like a signet ring, maybe you've seen in the movies, like a, a king of old would have a ring, and it would have his coat of arms, it would have his seal, and he would go to hot wax, and he would push his ring into the hot wax, and that hot wax would take the shape of his ring. It bore the exact imprint of his ring. Jesus then bears the exact imprint of God's nature. That's what it says here. Jesus is perfectly God. The nature of God is in him. Now, this, these two phrases together show us two really important things, I think. One is it shows us that if you want to see what God is like, if you want to know his glory, if you want to see his character, then look to the one who shines forth his glory and look to the one in whom his character is cut, who it's imprinted in. And that's Jesus. If you want to know God, then look for him in Christ. Look for him in God's word. But it also shows us that Jesus is so thoroughly God in his nature that he is both shining forth from God and God is cut into him. It's like from head to toe, in and side and out. Jesus is fully God. The next way that we see Jesus is better is he says this, after making purification for sins. Now, the, a, a really good translation of this for a bit could be after having made purification for sins. All right? After having made purification for sins. Now, where did we just see that it said has spoken? Right? That means that it's done. After having made purification for sins is also a verb tense that indicates it's final. Think back to your Old Testament, all right? Really rack your brains to remember what happened in the Old Testament. Every year, a high priest would go before God and make purification for their sins. Now, this had to happen repeatedly, over and over. Purification would be made every single year by the priest, But now, Jesus is the one who has made purification for our sins. It's a work that's finished, right? We don't need the blood of bulls and goats anymore because purification has been made, period. It's done. It's finished. What Paul is saying to us here is that the work of purification, the work of redemption, the work of salvation is done in Christ, We no longer need the priesthood. We no longer need men to go before us with the blood of bulls and goats because we have the blood of Christ that covers us. The next thing that he says shores this idea up. He says, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now the priests, whenever they were serving before God, they stood. When the priest was serving, there was no sitting down because his work was not finished. The priest would continually stand before God to serve him. But Christ, what does it say he did? He sat down. He finished the work. It's done. But not only did he finish the work of redemption, it tells us where he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think that this here is very evocative of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. If you're at trivia, now you know. Uh, But it's very important because in that psalm it says, the Lord, David speaks, gives us a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. David is seeing that there's going to be one who is greater than him who comes and sits on God's throne forever. He's going to be God's forever king. All of his enemies will be made his footstool and the first enemy that's going to be made his footstool will be death. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is better because he sits at the right hand of the majesty which means that he has conquered death. Why is Jesus better than Moses? Why is Jesus better than David? Why is Jesus better than Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all of these prophets? It is simply, not simply, but it's partially because Christ has raised from the dead. Jesus is better because he's conquered the grave. He sits at the right hand of God where he is reigning even now. The last reason that he gives us that Christ is better is in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Sometimes when we think of angels, if you're anything like me, you think of like my mom's precious moments collection. You think of those little baby cherubs. right? You're like, well, of course Jesus is better than precious moments figurines or porcelain dolls. Well, certainly heavenly beings... Heavenly angelic beings are in mind and in view here when he says angels. I think it's more than that. Angels simply are messengers. They're ministering spirits. They're the ones that God has sent out to accomplish his tasks. So in that sense, Moses is an angel. In that sense, Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, Samson, all of these people in the Old Testament are in one sense or another, they're angels. They were sent out by God to proclaim his message, to perform the duty and task for which he sent them. And here he says that Jesus is superior to all of them because the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than David because his name is better. And what did we say earlier? That there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved than Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is better because he is the only one whose name can give us salvation. I don't think you've heard, ever heard a sermon, at least from the three of us, me, Eric, or, or Israel, where we've said, trust in Moses for the forgiveness of your sins. No, we say trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because he is the one who is better than all the angels. He's better than anything and everyone you can possibly imagine. His name and his ministry are are superior. He is 
our true and perfect Savior. So to follow the structure of the book of Hebrews, what does this mean for our lives? Well, I want to give you three things. I want to give you three things that I think are the then, all right, or the therefore. Since Jesus is superior, since Jesus is better, then do this. Since Jesus is better, then it matters that we think rightly about him. I remember when I was in like middle school and high school, I, sometimes if it wasn't a school night, my dad would let me stay up and watch The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. My favorite part of The Tonight Show was whenever he would do jaywalking. You remember that segment? He'd go out and he would ask people on the streets like, who was George Washington? And they would like get it really, really wrong. It was really funny, but also very sad that people just don't know things. If we were to take a microphone out across the Chicagoland area, across the United States, and across the world today, and we were to ask people, who is Jesus? What did he do? I think we would get some very, very terrible answers. My fear, though, is that we would also stand outside a lot of churches today and ask people, who is Jesus? And what did he do? And we would get a lot of really, really bad answers. If when you think about Jesus... He is not supreme in your mind, then you are not thinking about him rightly. If when you think about your Christian faith, Jesus is not central to what you say, then you're not thinking about him rightly. Whenever you sit down for your membership application at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church and we ask you, what is the gospel? If Jesus is not central to that answer, then you are not thinking about Jesus rightly. If your life would be no different if Jesus was not the driving thought in your mind, if to you Christianity is a set, a set of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts, then you are not thinking about Jesus rightly. Jesus is our Savior. He is true God of true God. He has revealed to us who God is. So we should read books that help us to understand who He is. We should listen to good sermons. We should be a part of good Bible studies that help us to rightly understand Christ. Leads us to the second thing is that since Jesus is better, then we should rest in him. Or we should trust in him. Jesus is better than the law of Moses. If you feel like you need to earn your way to heaven, if you feel like you need to earn your way before God, church, hear this, that Jesus is better. And in fact, he's the only way. You should trust in him. Perhaps you, like the Jewish Christians and Hebrews, are struggling and suffering. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you have pressure at work to cave on various issues. Trust in Him. Jesus is better. Don't give in to the pressures of this world. This also means that it's not simply a, a, a mental cognition of who Jesus is. We are called to faith and repentance in Him. Jesus is better than, than anything that you can turn from. He's better than any sin. He's also better than any good endeavor that you might give your heart to. Since Jesus is better, then we should tr trust in him. Finally, since Jesus is better, he is worth building your life around. Last week, Kathy 
was talking with Gwen and I over here, and, and she asked Gwen, my five-year-old daughter, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Gwen said, I want to be a professional doctor. I don't know what professional means. I think it means that we play doctor a lot. And she'd like to get paid for it. I would too. Um, and you know, you, you, you know, as a parent, let's be real parents, that question of, ooh, what's my child going to do? What are they going to be? Are they going to be well-adjusted? Are they going to get into a good school? Are they going to make good grades? Uh, we ask ourselves these questions, right? We want our children to be successful. And so we do things to help them be successful. But then this week as I was thinking about this, you know what's more important than Gwen being a doctor? You know what's more important than Gwen being successful, having a good husband, all this stuff? What's more important than any of it is that she knows that Jesus is better than all of it. Maybe you're here today and you have built your life around getting a good education. And maybe you've built your life around getting a good career. That's fine, but Jesus is better. Maybe you've built your life around finding a good husband or finding a good wife. Maybe you've built your life around giving your kids a better future. But guess what? We can't guarantee any of those things. Can't guarantee that you're going to have a great job, that your spouse is going to be perfect all the time. You want proof that Jesus is better than your spouse? Talk to Amy, and she'll give you firsthand knowledge. Church, Jesus is better than anything we can give our lives to. So parents, we ought to spend more time catechizing our children, teaching them in the scriptures, than taking them to ballet practice and baseball practice. It is worth infinitely more in their lives that they know that Jesus is a better Savior, that He is the superior to all things. If Jesus is better, then maybe it means devoting your life to serving the church, to evangelism, is better than an early retirement. (laughs) But church, it's true. Christ is better. He is a better Savior. Hebrews makes us clear to us. And many times, in many ways, God spoke to us. Now, he has spoken in his son. Let us put all of our hope and our trust in him, who is a better savior than anything we could ever trust or imagine. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. We thank you that he was a perfect savior. Father, I pray that as we read your word, that we will look for Christ in it. Help us to not look for answers in anything other than what Christ has done and how you have saved us through him. As we continue to praise and worship you this morning, I pray that we will sing praise to the perfect Savior, the one who has made purification for our sins, who has risen from the grave and is seated at your right hand. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.